This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Alcon. This content was captured during a live virtual symposium. Voting took place during the symposium. I'm here to host the second round of the KOL Knockout Cataract Edition. So uh, buckle up. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we are um, uh, presented to you from Evolve Medica uh, Medical Education. This is a CME-approved event, of course, and, and, uh, and we're looking, looking forward to this second round. I'm your host. Uh, for those I hadn't met, my name is Blake. I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm the president and managing partner of the Williamson Eye Center and the Outpatient Surgery Center for, for Sight. But really, um, tonight is all about the contestants. Um, so we have Dr. Samitra Kandawal, who is the uh, cornea specialist for everyone in Louisiana. So if you're in Louisiana and you're a cornea specialist and you don't know what to do, you send that patient to Samitra at the Baylor College of Medicine, where she is a professor. She's also the medical director of the Lions Eye Bank of Texas. Samitra, how are you doing tonight? Doing good. Got my guns ready to knock out. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. And you have some uh, tough competition. Uh, you have uh, Luke Revenich, who's the medical director of ClearSight LASIK in Oklahoma City. My dear friend, Luke, what is 43 Vision? I haven't heard of that. What's, what's that? Yeah, 43 Vision is our uh, presbyopia concept where we uh, uh, really target ages 40 to 60, you know, those who want to be free of readers and bifocals. Gotcha. Okay. What's cool about Luke is uh, he's got an amazing practice that he took over a few years ago and has really blasted that thing to the stratosphere does a ton of uh, uh, refractive surgery, ton of LASIK and lens replacements. And it's going to be a good uh, 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 expert to hear from tonight, especially on some of the more challenging cases. And then finally, uh, we have the, the winner of round one, uh, Bennett Walton. Uh, Bennett, you know, after he won the first round of the KOL knockout, a lot's happened. He's cut his hair, as you can tell. Okay, so that's the first yeah. thing he did. Started a new practice, been at Walton Vision in Houston, Texas. Uh, and I think that his win in the first round of KOL Knockout really is what transformed his life. Bennett, do you have any comment for that? You know, uh, I can't thank the voters enough. I, I hope to earn your support tonight. Um, and the true answer to every question in memory of Bob Barker is $1. <laughs> Bob Barker. For those of you who don't know, Bob Barker uh, was the MC of A Price is Right. Uh, he's also on uh, Billy Madison. Was it Billy Madison? Happy Gilmore? Happy Gilmore. Happy That's Gilmore. Right. Yeah. Disclosures are, are listed here. Uh, my teammates and I uh, do some work with some different uh, companies in the ophthalmic space. Um, and the Evolve Medical Education staff, the planners and the reviewers, have no financial relationship with any of the ineligible companies. They also have uh, full policies in place that will identify and mitigate all financial relationships prior to this activity. Here are learning objectives. We're going to talk about the importance of uh, understanding patient goals and lifestyle, discuss some of the different delivery systems uh, within different IOLs. We're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of current and emerging IOL technologies, and also talk about our personalized treatment plans and how we kind of match it with patients' unique preferences. Let's begin. Who's nervous? Case one. Okay. So we have a 63-year-old woman. She's got two plus NSC, both eyes. She's complaining of poor vision. Four cut RK in the right, eight cut on the left, done 25 years ago. This patient has no ectasia that has been followed for a while. Um, can't tolerate contact lenses anymore. Doesn't really mind glasses, but does 
prefer the most reduced dependence possible. So pretty reasonable patient. Um, right eye is the dominant eye. The glasses she's currently wearing is Plano plus 275 in the right and plus 75 plus 150 in the left. So does have some cylinder there, uh, but sees fairly well. The autorefraction is all over the place. You see eight diopters of sill on the right, 525 on the left. And then the current MRX that we get shows that she's got more hyperopia and more astigmatism uh, in both eyes, but we can correct her to having a little bit better vision. But of course she's glaring up, she uh, can't drive at night anymore, um, and she's requesting cataract surgery. So, um, the uh, retinal exam is, uh, is normal, and you look at the tomography here, and you see that uh, this patient obviously has ectasia. There's some posterior elevation going on. She has this sort of crab claw-like vibe happening, especially in the topography on the OPD3 here. Um, so all this is kind of known to us. We're looking at her Pentacam AXL and the IOL master. Um, and you're seeing on the right eye about eight bucks of sill is what it's showing. Left eye shows six on the left on the Pentacam AXL. The left eye won't even read on the IOL master. This patient has a pretty diseased cornea. So, you know, you look at this and you're like, gosh, what's, what's the true astigmatism? Um, what's the true magnitude? And, and, and where is it? What's the, what's the axis? If you look at the right eye, Pentacam saying eight bucks at five, OPD saying five bucks at six. The auto is eight bucks at five. The MRX is 3.75 at 18. You see the current refraction there and the IOL master. They're kind of all over the place. And the left eye is too. In general, it looks like the Pentacam is kind of reading higher. And it looks like the OPD is kind of reading lower, um, somewhat in line with the current uh, MRX, I guess you could say. So what's your plan? Um, we're going to kind of go around. Uh, we're going to go uh, Luke and Sumitra and Bennett to start, and then we'll kind of go the opposite way and uh, kind of uh, uh, reverse order as we go through. So, Luke, tell me, what's, uh, what IOL type? What are you targeting? Um, what's your astigmatism correction plan? What tools are you thinking about doing? Yeah. Well, Blake, thank you. This is a, these are, this is a fun case. And truth be told, these are, these are the ones that I kind of enjoy from an academic perspective and for the right patient who's willing to, you know, to put in the time and the effort and really wants to be as glasses free as possible. I mean, it's uh, it's fun. So, so, so first of all, let's start with the right eye. It's the dominant one. That's the one that, you know, typically you want to, you really want to hit that, uh, you know, hit that distance target, make, give them the greatest clarity possible. You know, when you said Ectasia, I mean, there's, it's, it's relative. Sometimes I'll, I'll do some PRK to debulk um, before I consider doing something like the LAL. And with this, I, I don't really want to touch this cornea more than, more than I, more than I have to. So um, I, I wouldn't consider PRK in this case. Um, you know, this is a, you know, for somebody that's best corrected to 2025, I'm really looking for an IOL that's going to get them as close as possible. And, you know, ideally even 2020, although it's, you know, be, it would be a challenge in this case. I really think this is where the, the, the light, adjustable, uh, light adjustable lens shines. You know, you could consider the ICA that is considered off-label in the dominant eye. <clears throat> you know, that being said, you know, there have, have been uh, case reports of the ICA being placed bilaterally or or in the dominant eye with, with success. But for somebody with a CDBA of 2025, I'm going to go with the LAL. The silicone optic has a high 
Um, the high quality of vision, you know, better than most acrylics. Um, that would tell this patient that this is going to be a, um, it's going to be a process and we're probably going to end up hyperopic, you know, for the first, you know, month or two, given that, given that cornea. Um, and there's a, a, you know, you know, we probably will not be able to get all of the cylinder, but I've been very surprised that even with a buck, buck of cylinder left with the LAL, we can still achieve fairly acceptable vision. In the left eye, I would, I would consider both the LAL and the IC8, uh, given that she, you know, doesn't seem to mind glasses too much. I'd probably go for distance only, expecting some extended depth of focus just due to the HOAs of the cornea. Um, but the IC8, I would, I would consider, but I'd probably do a bilateral LAL in this case. Another beauty, another nice thing about that is if, if in a couple months or um, 10, 12 weeks, we decide that we want to add a little bit more distance or near, we can do that. Um, for, for corneas like this, I really do want to wait at least eight weeks before doing that first treatment, just knowing that we may have some temporary glasses or to, to manage some expectations up front. So this, uh, this, would, this would be a fun case. So you're doing bilateral LALs, final answer, your target, you're targeting distance vision in both eyes, and you're just going to hope for the best. That's the goal. Yes, sir. Okay. I would expect around 2025 or 2030 and with distance vision, and I'd probably expect around J3-ish at, at near with that. Okay. Sumitra, you're up. You know, I think the LAL is a very um, sexy answer. Looks a good looking guy. So I know I know he picked that for that reason. Very good looking. I, I like to put the brakes a little bit on these patients with light adjustable lens. There's a few things that I have to warn them. First off, I tell them with this lens, you're gonna have to be patient. I'm gonna have to be patient. And everyone around us is gonna have to be patient because it's surprising how you tell them whatever time frame, three weeks, four weeks, eight weeks for the RK patients, they're shocked. They're just stunned at how long it takes. And our study showed some of these RK patients take up to six months before we finalize and lock them in. So I give them kind of that worst case scenario. I make them promise they're not going to complain about valet parking at Baylor each time. And I tell them we're in for the ride together. Um, and I make sure I'm patient enough for them. Um, and my tech is patient enough. The second thing I get really concerned about these patients, and I've done light adjustable lens on these patients, just like Luke said, is I watch for diurnal variation. Um, and I want a couple of measurements throughout the day to understand you know, what exactly is going on with their cornea. Because if they have a lot of diurnal fluctuation in their refraction from morning to afternoon to evening, it's like a moving target um, to do the treatments for light adjustable. Still an awesome thing, but at the same time, I tell them your vision changes all day long. You're, we're just going to have to hope for the best. I guess we'll pick one o'clock in the afternoon to be your time. You want to bring these patients each time. And you just have to add that to it because then they start to think, Oof, where, where am I going with this? With And then their ocular surface oftentimes makes the refraction fluctuate. So if they're on board with it, if they're okay with the caveats, I tell them this is going to be the best lens for you but it's not gonna be the same outcome as everybody else that I'm putting this in, then I'm game for it. I think it's pretty great. Um, you know, This patient from what you said uh, has realistic expectations. I didn't see that word in there, um, but I'll, I'll make sure that he, the patient and I both understand she and I understand we both have realistic expectations for it. Um, and I think if everything is lined up, I agree with Luke that the digestible lens is great, but I take a lot of time and I make them go home and do some meditation, thinking, analyzing of their life. And then if they come back and they say, I'm game, let's do this. We're on board. And I'd be surprised how many patients come back and they're like, I don't know about this. And then I'm like, well, let's back it off, you know? 
And maybe a monofocal is the way to go, understanding that in your eye, because I probably can't do you know, a lot of refractive treatment afterwards, it may even result in an ILL exchange if we don't get that right target, if we end up a little hyperopic. And so I think you can go either directions. Um, and I think a monofocal may not be the cool, sexy thing to do, um, but for many of these patients, you know, it actually is a great option for them. Okay, so you're leading with maybe maybe go monofocal OU uh, and just say, listen, you know, you're going to have to be in some glasses, but it's going to be way, way, way better than what you want. I know that your goal is to maybe not be in glasses all the time, but you're also realistic. And so that's what you're going to shoot with, you think? I think so. Absolutely. Okay. Bennett? All right. Well, interesting and great perspective so far, of course. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about too much is how much sill do we want to correct, right? Because we see all these various numbers and in these irregular eyes, um, one of the number one things to do is use the sill that the patient will take in the foropter. You know, we have that pellucid crab claw look. Uh, we know it's against the rule steepening. And yeah, it's, thank you for pulling up the images. And so uh, see how much the patient will take. Um, often it's less than a lot of these devices, which could put it in or near the LAL range. Another thing is I want to know why she's contact lens intolerant. Not everyone is contact lens intolerant for the same reason. And I have worked with some phenomenal scleral fitters. And the way I would approach this lens is, yes, I would use LAL. But here's why I would use it. I would use it because, first of all, it is a monofocal as it goes in. So if you say, what if with the cataract out of the way, we are able to get the vision clearer, pop on a scleral or some hybrid or some other lens, uh, which optometrists would be happy to, to help fit. I'm not an expert in it myself. And they may say, wow, now that the cataract's out of the way, now that I'm not super hyperopic, I kind of like it. So that's one option. But because the LAL is still adjustable, you can choose to only adjust the spherical component or you can adjust the spherocylindrical component. And of course, the way you do that is you show them in a trial frame. And you say, this is what it would look like if we tried to maximize your glasses and contacts independence. It'll never be quite as perfect as a contact, but it might be close enough where you're happy. Now, yes, it takes a lot more time, but to have that extra flexibility inside the eye, worst case scenario, you're at a monofocal anyway. Best case scenario, you have a bifurcated plan that lets you go in a way that makes the patient happiest. And I agree with Luke on the point that the extended depth of focus built into this cornea is quite a fair amount. Uh, and so, I, yes, it takes a long time, but that's the approach that I would take with the LAL. And I do think the patient will end up choosing being pretty close to distance in each eye or maybe just a tiny bit myopic in one or even both because of that extended range to get the range as best as possible. So you're probably talking distance to minus a quarter, and that way you haven't removed the, the rest of the light burden from an IC8. Okay, so your so your final answer, you're gonna be doing mostly distance target, mostly LAL, and having a long conversation that honestly scleral lenses after LAL are gonna be your best bet, even though you don't want to be in contact lenses. Uh, I'm saving that option. I'm telling them, hey, this lets us see what it's like without the cataract, and then we decide if we're gonna correct the astigmatism in the eye, because the adjustability is always there. It's already there. One thing that kind of uh, stands out to me um, is that, you know the whole scleral lens thing. Um, 
I just I have found so so like Bennett, um, I have uh, the the highest volume scleral fitter in Louisiana in my practice. The dude does like twenty a week, um, which is a lot for my little small town. And um, man, just like the results will vary widely from like multifocal IOLs placed by surgeons. Results from sclerals vary widely between ODs. There are many ODs that do one a month and quote unquote do sclerals. And then there's many that do 20 a week and really do sclerals. And I have found that, you know, there really is no better vision um, than a monofocal lens with a perfectly fitting scleral in these people. Now, the challenge is, um, can they really do it? Because I have I've had several patients that have a true phobia, um, you know, and, and, and can't do it at all. Um, I have other patients who flat out can't afford it, you know, and, and I think it's like a thousand dollars per scleral, uh, per, you know, per eye, and they have to get that repeated. So insurance helps sometimes, sometimes it doesn't where we are. Um, so that's been one challenge here. So I'm going to kind of move on here and let you know what I did. So um, I actually did recommend um, uh, LAL um, for all the reasons that you guys mentioned. Uh, but the patient just couldn't afford it. LAL cost $5,000 an eye in my practice, and they just they just couldn't do it. Uh, and they weren't really excited about all of the follow-up. Um, my, um, my next sort of pitch to them um, was uh, monofocals. Uh, so what Sumitra had said, monofocals, and said, listen, I know that you don't like contacts, but you got to meet my guy. My guy is the real contact guy, you know, and uh, found out how much that cost and said, you know, I'm going to have to be doing that routinely every year. You know, Blake, honestly, if I have to wear glasses, I'm okay with that. What I want you to do is fix me as best you can. I can't pay you $10,000, but I can, you know, uh, you know, pay for astigmatism correction and uh, get me as close as you can. Um, so I, I guess that, you know, the challenge was what astigmatism do you believe? And so the magnitude varies widely. But the meridian is actually fairly similar. If you look at the right, it's, you know, five degrees, six degrees, five degrees, 18 degrees, 12 degrees, three degrees, you know, so right and left and 179, 179, 180, 160. So it's kind of all kind of sort of against the rule, isn't it? And uh, and so that's why I said, you know what, um, this is a case where actually I actually like Aura uh, as another sort of tiebreaker. Um, and all of it was sort of aligning where I said, okay, this person has against the rule cylinder. We had them come back multiple times. We did first thing in the morning because uh, that's when they wanted to see their best. And we had them come in a few times for serial manifests with my OD. Uh, and that's what we did. So I placed a bilateral maxed out torques and said, you know what, we'll, we'll just kind of go with it and see what happens. Uh, and they did uh, really well so far. Um, minus uh, 50 plus 150 in the right, minus 275 plus one on the left. We're considering maybe doing some type of LAL piggyback on the left side just because we can't do LASIK on top of that, but it, they have a long way to go. So we're going to, we're going to let them go, uh, uh, you know, at least three or four months before we do anything, but uh, we, we may just end up in glasses. And this is one of those people, again, not sexy, not cool to, to present maybe, uh, but this is the real world stuff that, that I actually see every day. So I wanted to kind of uh, uh, share that case with you guys. So I appreciate it. It sounds like we were all kind of um, of similar mind there. Um, so case number two. Okay. Settling in. This is a 59-year-old guy. He says, Blake, I have cat I've had cataracts forever and ever. I said, okay. And he says, I'm coming in because I need surgery. And they said, you're the guy. Um, he's a tax attorney. He's interested in a full range of vision without reading glasses. Okay. 
So tax attorney, ding, ding, ding. For me, in my little category is engineers, tax attorneys, and pilots. Those are my, and ophthalmologists. Those are my three like little bucket of people uh, who actually I love operating on. They're my favorite people to operate on, but I just have to carve out like you know, an extra 30 minutes because they're gonna ask all the questions and it's fine. They're asking the same questions I would. Um, as long as they're not mean, I'll operate on them. But anytime, um, I always have my team like write down what the, what, what the person's profession is. That way I kind of get in the frame of mind. You see the MRX there, um, not a whole lot um, of refractive error. And then um, you see this lamp exam showing just this, this little kind of congenital cataract look, looking thing right there in the center, um, starting to affect their vision. So maybe uh, Sumitra, you start this round um, and then Bennett and then Luke, what's your, what's your philosophy on congenital cataract patients who want spectacle freedom? Do you have you know, are, are there some certain lenses you will offer or or or, or won't op, uh, offer them? Does it matter what the what the other eye looks like, or if the other eye is you know clear, would you do it just in one eye? Does congenital cataracts is that a thing for you at all, or uh, um, how do you how do you take care of these people? I mean, these congenital cataract patients they come in such a range, though. I mean, if they have a cataract in one eye that's created amblyopia, we certainly have expectations that we want to set. Um, and that's not always easy to find. You know, this patient is 2040 in both eyes. It looks like a very similar um, refraction in both eyes, no history of patching, you know, no history of an eye being weaker, an ESO or an EXO. So I think this patient probably has fairly good visual potential in both eyes. But the challenge I have is, you know, I don't know what their best vision is. So I caveat it with that, just like we caveat lots of patients when it comes to, you know, what's your best potential vision. And then with that, you know, then we start to decide you know, what's realistic for you in your lifestyle, you know, what are you going to get versus um, give up um, for various type of lenses. And so just like you love to know what the patient does for a living, I like to kind of understand, you know, from the morning to the evening, what focal points they, they spend the most time with, you know, are they distance focused, are they intermediate focused, are they near focused? And then, you know, if they were to pick two out of three, which they would be, which I would thought that with the trifocal lenses, quadrifocal lenses, you wouldn't have to do that because you could have it all. But the reality is some of those um, you know, lenses that have multiple focal points, you get a little bit more distance from some of them. You get a little bit more near from some of them. There's definitely been more experience with certain trifocal lenses giving more near, certain giving more distance. Some of the EDOF lenses give great distance and intermediate. So I think that's where we start to kind of divvy into, you know, what are the goals for the patients um, and you know, what the potential is. And for a patient like this, I would offer them um, various options that I'd offer any patient, even if they didn't have a congenital cataract, but I would just caveat, like, I don't, I didn't meet you when you were, you know, 18 years old. And if you have a prescription that says you were 20, 20 and everything else is normal with your eye, then that's great. Um, but if you've had a quote unquote vision issues your whole life, I'm not sure cataract surgery will fully fix it. Okay. I agree. Bennett, um, any philosophy here? I don't want to hear what lens you would choose yet, but I do want to hear if you have anything um, that you think about differently with these types of people. Yeah, I, I do. A young, person who, who's a young person, highly functioning, professional, you know. Wants yeah, I have, absolutely. I, I, to me, it's a question of the delta. Where are they come from? Excuse me, where have they come from in their vision and where are they now? And so if there has been a change that the patient reports, this, and he says, yeah, it really has gotten worse. Um, that means something, especially in somebody who is so observant. Um, I, in general, I have been very carefully counseling these patients 
And I've been very pleasantly surprised by how much vision they get afterward. Now, of course, they're not all the same, right? Where the cataract is within the lens in terms of being anterior or posterior near the nodal point makes can make a big difference, right? Uh, and the femto use probably depends on what type of cataract it is. How much of the fibrotic capsule may be there? Uh, is it you know a posterior polar, in which case you can bring the gates up and use femto or just not use femto at all? Either one is a perfectly good option. Um, and if the fellow eyes lens is still clear, uh, I do think that plan will always change because we're talking about young people, right? We have a, an eye that at least accommodates some on the other side. Now he's 59, he's, he doesn't, he's not accommodating a ton, but it's enough where we're probably not gonna jump into cataract surgery at his prescription. Now, if he he's not clear, right? Cause he's 20, 40 minus two, even in that left eye. Yeah. Um, but in general, I like to match optical profiles. And so if someone is going to stay clear in the other eye, I want a pretty clear lens in terms of day night in the first eye. Yeah. Otherwise they're doing this and, and sort of, you know, uh, doing the refractive salute. Luke, exactly. what do you think? Any, anything to add there? Yeah. So when I think of, when I think of people with congenital cataracts who you know, first of all, I think what what is going to make them the happiest? And they and they may not even know that right away, right? Now, this person's already best corrected to twenty forty. You know, in the state of Oklahoma, that's good enough to good enough to drive. And so, in my mind, anything that's about twenty forty, twenty fifty or better has useful vision typically. And so, this is bilateral most likely. So, you know, I'm, people who want if they want spectacular freedom, you know, I'm I typically talk about all the lens options, but I usually error more toward lenses that I know are going to give them better distance, you know, not have the potential of, you know, waxy vision. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone wants near vision, but I think about people who are truly frustrated, it's typically more the, the distance vision than the near vision. I have people who, who would like more near, but it's typically not, not something that's angry. They want, but if they can't see, if they can't drive, if they can't do it, you know, manage their, their life and just throw on a pair of readers, those are the angry patients. In a case like this, I think that this is probably mild amblyopia, and I've been very surprised at the, excuse me, quality of vision that we can achieve. So, you know, what lenses would I consider? Kind of went over that. Do I use femto? You know, this is more of a philosophical thing. I've, you know, there was a time where I did 1,500 consecutive femto cases, and I don't, I don't use it much anymore. Would I be afraid in this case? Not necessarily, but I'd probably use it. I'd probably just be careful and use it more for the capsulotomy and. I, uh, I don't know how much um, lens softening I would do. So, but the other, if the fellow eyes lens is clear, I mean, it's in this case, it's uh, it's probably not given this 2040 um, with that, with that ref, uh, refraction, but no, I mean, if it's, if, it, if there's a potential of at least 2040, I consider that useful vision. Okay. Okay. Um, so we get some biometry here um, and you see there's just a little touch of astigmatism, really not much there. Um, on the topography or on the Iowa master, pretty normal um, axial length as well. So Samitra, what's your plan? What are you going to offer this 59-year-old with congenital cataracts who is a tax attorney and would like full range of vision, minimal need for readers? Well, I'm going to give him first off the caveat that, you know, I, I don't know what his vision was when he's 20, but I can't quite make him 20 again. And so if he's interested in spectacle independence um, at all ranges, it may come with some decreased contrast and some glare at nighttime. And if he's okay with that, if he says that's that's okay, I get it. I'm, I'm on board with that. I've done my reading because I've come to them as they have. 
then you know I would offer them um, you know some sort of, of of trifocal quadrifocal type lens. But I just I always like to just remind them that we may be splitting some of the light. We may be having some glare issues. I mean, I really like the extended up the focus lenses um, for these sort of gray zone patients. Um, I feel like certainly I think all of us have experience putting them in patients um, that maybe are not the perfect candidate for trifocals or some of the older multifocals, um, and they've done really well. And and I think the distance vision can be very very good. And I kind of with this patient, you know, it's all about how you kind of sell things. And I think I would kind of make him try to gear towards how much near vision do you use? You know, I mean, what if you had great distance, great intermediate, maybe a little bit of glare, but in general, pretty good vision at both. Would that be enough knowing that then you wouldn't have to have as much glare halos? So I think for this patient, I'd always offer a monofocal for all patients um, because a tax attorney may not be a very good one and not make a lot of money and, and may, you know, shy away from the costs. Um, but with all that being said, <laughs> I would also say, you know, an EOF is a great option as well. Um, and, and for someone like this, I, I don't do any sort of monovision or anything if they've never tried it before. And this patient never has tried it before. Um, and if they even start talking about it, then they'll have to get like a light adjustable lens. And then I don't know if I want to see a tax attorney every two weeks, to be honest. Um, like you said, Blake, it, you know, part of your decision to do LAL for my practice is based on how much I like the patient as well on that first visit. Good answer. So what I'm hearing you say is maybe Vividi or uh, Panoptics, if you, is that if they do um, want to try I, I tend to do more uh, symphony, but yeah. So symphony. So you would do a symphony, a bilateral symphony targeting distance in both eyes? And with, and, you know, knowing that he's going to have to wear something for the up close. Okay. Bennett, what are you thinking? My goal here uh, is to look at this uh, compliantly. So I would take LAL off the list because there's not, unless you believe that uh, biometry K reading it's really not a toric lens astigmatism correction case in most cases. Um, LAL is uh, the the dual aspect ratio, uh, excuse me, the dual aspect rule is to correct astigmatism. And yeah, you have on the left eye 0.54. So if you want to let that squeak by, that's okay. It's where he's coming from and where he's going. He's starting at 2040 or worse. This is not a super, super, super mild cataract that's 2025 glaring to 2040 or batting to 2040. This is 2040 Snellen. Um, and so I think that gives me room to go for a trifocal, um, whether it's panoptics or synergy. And in, I would use a panoptics in this patient. I would do the poor seeing eye first, assuming he has. Now, I can't remember. Did he have cataracts in both eyes his whole life or just the one? Yeah, he had both. Both. Okay. Yeah, I would probably say my plan is to try this one. I'd do this, I'd, I would do the panoptics in the first eye. I'd explain all the things going on. But I think with that lens, we can get over the hurdle of where his vision has been in the entire range. Uh, and with appropriate counseling, that would be my choice. I know it's a bit bold, but that's how I would approach it. Luke? So we have a we have one vote for EDOF with Symphony. We have one vote for trifocal, trifocal with panoptics. You know, I have mad respect for my, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Bennett Walton. I think that that's, um, in my in my mind, I think it's a little aggressive. But hey, if it uh, if it works out, it works. <laughs> I, um, of the trifocals, I would, I mean, in deference, I I think the panoptics would be the best way to go. That being said, in this case, like we've got a tax attorney. We we have somebody that I'm assuming is probably very similar in personality to the you know the panel up here. And the, and the engineers, so I, I'd have to agree with Sumitra here. I think that uh, I think the EDOF is probably the way to go. You know, and all in our in our practice, all of our packages include LASIK. So, 
if we miss the target a little bit, if we want to do a little bit of mini mono with it, you know, plus supporter in one eye, minus supporter in the other eye, and I want to touch it up with LASIK, well, you know, we include that. But now I've, you know, I, I've learned that I'm I'm pretty good at exchanging lenses, but I'm also I've also learned that I don't really enjoy it. So I'd uh, I'd rather go with the EDOF, you know, under promise a bit, expect around J3, and let him know that his computer is going to be perfectly clear and uh, he can uh, maybe do my taxes next year. So you're targeting distance and EDOF, and which EDOF lens specifically, Luke? Uh, you know, this the symphony. I've been very impressed with the Symphony OptiBlue. You know, I was a fairly big Symphony um, implanter years ago. Okay. Yeah, the, the spiderweb halo and glare really was a detriment to a lot of our patients, so I stopped using it. The uh, you know the the filter has really been a game changer for this lens. So I've used the Vividi, but in in my in my practice, when I'm really going for visual quality, I think that the the Symphony OptiBlue is the way to go. Okay, so we have two votes for OptiBlue Symphony targeting distance, um, and then one for the panoptics. So uh, you know, for me, um, um, I, I think that again, what's great about these cases is I really do feel like these are plain Jane everyday cases. They're really not that crazy, but when you start talking them out, you realize that like everybody would do something a little bit different, and nobody's wrong, and and, uh, and everybody probably gets to some level of happy-ish with the patient. Uh, based on our preoperative discussions, because we're so used to that and understand um, that part of it. Um, you know, for me, I think that with this patient specifically, um, quality of vision um, is it was was of utmost importance. Also, yeah, it didn't look like a twenty forty minus cataract to me. There's just that little, you know, that little area um, there in the center, this congenital cataract. That to me, I was kind of like, man, is there some level of amblyopia? I didn't know, so I wasn't feeling. Um, I wasn't feeling, you know, super excited about doing a, a trifocal. Um, and so what I decided to do is um, this uh, Synergy Symphony um, uh, combo. Now, you know, Synergy technically obviously is a, a trifocal mix with EDOF. But for me, um, you know, I, I just found that with the Symphony OptiBlue, you know, I've been able to, you know, treat patients like this routinely, and they do very, very well. Um, I think that you could do um, a, a Vividi in someone like this. You probably could get away with a panoptics in someone like this as well. And um, your result says that you could have, right? Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I mean. He got to 2015. So yeah, if the patient could've. tells you my vision has gotten worse, there's room. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, you know, this patient was kind of in talking to them, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to clearly paint that. And so I think, honestly, I was kind of going for it a little bit here. I think that I probably could have done Symphony OU uh, or like a Vividi OU uh, or even an EMV or, or, or even iHands. I mean, there's, any different, there's many different things that you could have done. I think I was being a little aggressive in this case. The biggest thing is that when, with my tax attorneys, um, you know, they're on spreadsheets all day long. And if they're going to pay that much money, they want to read up close. You know, this is not someone who says, yeah, if I have to casually read reading glasses, I'm okay with that. This is someone who says, you know, I want to read up close. Um, and like Luke, um, I've gotten very comfortable doing lens, you know, lens exchanges. And so, so if this guy was miserable at like month two, month three, I'd just take it out and we'd put in a monofocal or we'd put in, you know, some type of you know, uh, uh, monofocal EDOF type, you know, sphere collaboration play uh, with this guy. Um, and so that's what we did. And, and uh, we swung and uh, we were able to knock it out the park. Luckily, um, patients doing very, very well and seeing very, very well. So maybe a little bit aggressive, um, but it worked out in this case.
um, so uh, halfway home. Um, this is a 52-year-old man who comes in. He's a contractor, and he's complaining of reading glasses. He says, listen, Blake, I'm starting to see poorly at all distances. Um, and, dude, I think I'm going to have to go and buy focals. Am I getting old? Like, what's going on? I'm only 52. Um, he's never worn glasses or contacts his whole life. He has no intention of wearing glasses or contacts. He's never been in them. Um, he doesn't really have any other complaints. He loves flying. So like Luke, he's a pilot. Um, he has an SR-22 20, uh, uh, as well. Um, and um, interestingly, he's currently doing a, a, a project on my house. So uh, this is a guy that I'm going to have to see. I, I, I have this bad habit of operating on people who I'm like super close with, or I'm like currently doing business with, or I'm going to have to see routinely every day for weeks or months. Not great as a, as a rule, but I've just been found myself in that situation. Anyway, um, so that's in the back of my mind. It's like, I'm going to have to see this dude. I don't want to hear any complaints. What can I do for this guy? Um, slightly F exam. He's got some mild California cataracts. Actually, he's got a little PSC. Um, and he does have what my referring OD called corneal staining. And I said, okay, he's got some dry eye or something. Um, and we'll, we'll look out for that. You see the refraction there, you know, 20, 30-ish, but glares. Um, and it's just going to, you know, the spherical equivalent's a little bit hyperopic. So you can tell why he's having some problems with this up close when he's doing his drawings, when he's trying to work on this pool that he's trying to build uh, in, my, in the back of my house here. So you see the slit lamp exam, and we see this uh, corneal verticulata, uh, vortex keratopathy. Uh, AKA, whatever you want to call this stuff. Um, this was the corneal staining that, um, that uh, my referring OD was referring to. Um, so um, uh, Bennett, you start us off. What's your philosophy? This guy's 52, right? So what's, what's, your, what's your thought on operating on younger people who've never been in contacts and glasses ever, ever? How do you talk about expectations versus like your average 70-year-old cataract patient who's been in bifocals? And vortex keratopathy, does that, does that change anything for you? Um, you know, you bring up some good points. Uh, the vortex doesn't change it too much to me. Is there a little bit of light filtering through the cornea? Yeah, probably. But I don't think that makes a huge difference to me here. Um, clarity, clarity, clarity is what we need here in my mind. Um, and I'm not going to tell you my final choice because we're kind of just answering these preliminary questions, I know. But um, they, if they don't know what presbyopia truly feels like, big red flag um if they um if if their expectations because they know no different are that i'll be able to see everything perfectly and they're used to 100% of light all the time that's another red flag not not that you can't do lots of options but that you really need to speak with a lot of detail uh address all the nuances that they simply have no awareness of um and so I do think the counseling is very different. This reminds me of a a guy in his, his 30s, diabetic cataract, um, great guy. Uh, and it's a very different discussion. And these PSC patients are often young anyway, but yeah, it's a different, it's a different beast. Luke, what do you think? You see lots of young people coming in for clear you know, custom lens replacements. How do you how do you talk to these folks? Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of our bread and butter. The median age for lens replacement in our in our practice is 52. So, and this person has a cataract. So this is this is somebody that, you know, that I would have no problem operating on. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, it's you know, Bennett is absolutely correct. I mean, I think they're you know, refractive lens exchange or clear lens replacement is 
is a different procedure than cataract surgery, just because it's uh, you know where the patient's coming from. But uh, but this patient's already already lost enough where I do think that they will certainly benefit. You know, we really focus more on the dysphotopsias, the halo, the glare, the quality of vision that uh, you don't have to focus on quite as much in, in uh, if there's a dense cataract. But uh, but yeah, I mean, just longer longer counseling um, certainly. Uh, I would want to know what this patient's near vision is. You know, our, our rule of thumb is that they need to be at least, you know, J3 before we consider, um, you know, consider, you know, multifocals unless they are, unless they're already uh, myopic. So as for the vortex, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say it's a non-issue, but it's something that, I, that wouldn't bother me too much. Okay. Sumitra? Yeah, I agree with them. I think, you know, the, the different beast is the patient that's younger, that has trauma or something like that, where one eye is very clear. Um, and that's just, I think, a very different discussion because now I'm going to do surgery on an eye that's not clear. It's got a cataract. And, you know, that's when I sort of tell them, hey, you know, the vision is going to be different. And if we do a type of lens that allows, you know, multiple focal points, it's going to be different distance vision, the other eye, but they usually get it because um, their vision is is not very good. And Think that's a different than this patient, but it's also one that everybody should kind of know about because you'll run into that patient where um, they're going to compare the two eyes. Um, with this patient, the vortex keratopathy doesn't bother me so much. I mean, the challenge, of course, is anytime you have light filtering, you're going to have some contrast issues, right? And we the literature says that vortex keratopathy technically is you know not visually significant, but we don't know that. And obviously, the cornea is not normal, and so I think it does limit some of the choices perhaps, but I think it really just has an honest discussion. I think a photo speaks a thousand words and this patient has never been told that he's got, you know, deposits on his cornea. So I think showing him that helps him. And then you can pick a lens choice based on what his interests and desires are, um, knowing that he now knows what his cornea looks like. Okay, I love it. All right, so we get some testing here. Um, the uh, tomography is, is, is pretty vanilla. He's got a little bit of cylinder, about a buck on the right and 0.7. Um, on the left, nothing too crazy. Good, good corneal thickness. So, Bennett, um, what's your plan? This is a a fifty-ish young, fifty-year-old patient. Never been in in contacts uh, or glasses ever. Um, yeah, likes to fly. What are you gonna What are you gonna choose? To, to me, this is a straightforward answer. And and, and you guys may or may not um, agree with where I'm going with this, but he's young. He's always had all his light in focus. He's always been in perfect focus. He's a pilot. We don't want to split light and give him photopsias on a landing strip. Have you guys seen uh, uh, photos of runways in urban areas at night? Uh, Luke is a pilot, I know. Uh, it's wild. And so I don't want to put things around or emanating from any of those things. Um, so what I do, I tell him, you're a pilot. Look into the FAA and look into the pilot forums, because I want to tell these people, do your research ahead of time, not after the fact. But what I would do is I would do an LAL in each eye, initially targeting distance, so that when he knows what it's like to be presbyopic, and by the way, LAL has more range than most monofocals, um, off the bat. But even if he wants to pull it in a little bit closer in one of the eyes, um, he has that option. And to me, it's the best clarity. You're not splitting light. It's going to be probably better than most of the EDOFs in terms of his distance quality. He'll have more range than most and can customize that when he knows what presbyopia feels like. Um, to me, that's kind of a no-brainer. Then I would fly with him myself. 
So you would target you would target uh, the monovision and the non-dominant eye because he doesn't want to wear readers. I, I, I would I would I would start him at distance in the dominant, and I'd start him further out than I think he will want in the non-dominant, um, which is probably for him somewhere either distance or minus a half. If he's not worn monovision, I don't want to start him there. I still, I'd rather start him distance and pull him in and let him make that decision. And that's a, that's a journey that we have often with people. It's okay for them to change their targets between surgery and adjustment and between one adjustment and another. And that way you're walking him through as carefully as you can. Okay. So start him out at, at, at distance, but maybe see how much near he does get and pull him in as, as, as he, as he, as he grad as he get, gets, you know, more and more used to it because he exactly. don't want to be at readers. All right, Luke. Yeah, so, you know, I think pilots are some of the most challenging people to treat, right? Because the, you know, although the, you know, in this case, probably a third-class medical, there has been some reform, and they, they need to be 2020, at least correctable, with glasses. They need to be able to see well enough at, at near. Thankfully, most of the instrumentation is at arm's length, so an EDOF typically gets it. You know, I, I've done some mild blended mini monovision in pilots, and it, it just, it just never works out how they want. They want they want the full range. They want the quality. So, I, mean, I, I think what Ben has said with, with an LAL is perfectly reasonable for somebody that wants good, I mean, good quality of vision. Um, there's a little bit of cylinder there, so the LAL you know may help with that. You know, I would consider maybe an LAL in, in one eye, maybe an EDOF in the other. But you know, if this were my patient, you know, I would, assuming that they had lost some near, I would again, I'd either I would probably do a bilateral EDOF again, the Symphony OptiBlue. And in somebody that doesn't fly at night as much, I may consider a symphony uh, symphony synergy um, because I've really been happy with that combination. Um, but I, you know, again, if there's enough touristy, I'd probably just place a torque, um, and then possibly the femtosecond and uh, maybe maybe the aura. But no, I think uh, again, EDOF, it just it shines so well. The symphony optic blue just has a much better quality of night vision. Um, and unless they're like, unless they're, unless they're flying uh, airlines or class one medical, I, I probably wouldn't do a, I wouldn't do a monofocal or the LAL, I would do a bilateral EDOF. What's is class one medical? Is that like, is that like jets and things or is that instrument rated people? What's the difference between class one, class three? The class one, these are the, these are the people that are flying, flying you and me on Southwest or Delta. Um, you know, they, they need good enough, good enough near vision. So they, you know, Multifocals are approved by the FAA, um, but you know they they really need they really need that quality of distance vision where I may consider a an LAL in in the dominant eye and an EDOF for multifocal and non-dominant <clears throat> for somebody who's probably just a class three and bilateral EDOF is the way I'd go. Class three means they're just flying themselves. They're just they're just enjoying like being a personal pilot basically. Right. So a couple of years. I mean, they're the type of person that just flies you know small planes like a Cirrus SR twenty two. Gotcha. Okay. So your final answer is maybe an LAL dominant, symphony non-dominant, or maybe even bilateral symphony. Okay. Symmetra? I mean, I like the light adjustable lens for this patient. I know we focused on the flying, um, but it sounds like he's somebody that's really active. I mean, he's working on your house, Blake. I want him to figure out what focal point is actually where he wants to be, because I'd hate to um, you know, not give him the near vision that the EDOF may not get. And then all of a sudden he like, you know, nails his, uh, you know, hammers his nail to his thumb on your property. That'd be really bad for your insurance. 
But all honesty, I think the one thing that's really nice about the light adjustable lens, um, and Bennett pointed this out, is you can really trial afterwards with a contact lens. You know, I would do the light adjustable. I go a little plus. Actually, I do a little plus of both eyes um, because I think you get the most EDOF on that first treatment um, when you go towards the more myopic. Um, that's really been shown in, in more recent cases and such. And I think the thing about it is at that point, he can wear a contact lens and just see how it's like being at work, you know, have him fly, have him go and, and you know, do your pool. I don't know, go on 80th design on your pool, um, but just kind of figure out what is his lifestyle. And I'd be surprised how many patients come back and they're like, you know what, I just can't do a little mini monovision. And that's okay. We, we lock them in at distance. Or they come back and I've even had one patient, granted they were a little myopic before that was like, I think I wanna end up being a minus 0.5, minus 0.75 because they just found they didn't do as much distance and the distance was pretty good, but they loved being able to pick up their pill bottle like they used to. So I think that would be my choice. And I think, you know, you're in great shape. You're gonna watch him wear his sunglasses outside on your property. You'll have little cameras on him. He'll be the most compliant patient, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so you're gonna do you're gonna do LEL both eyes. I am, yeah. Okay, bilateral LEL aiming for distance, and maybe doing a little bit of mini mono. Only if he does it well in a contact lens. Only if he proves it to you first with a contact lens trial. Yeah, I think um, I think that you know for me, what what really jumps out is those patients who have had good vision their whole life. Um, you know, for me, that's just different. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like a custom lens replacement, even though they're 52 uh, and they have, you know, a little early PSC now. Um, yeah, so yes, they haven't been seeing great for the past, like, you know, three to six months. Um, but before that, they were seeing pretty damn well their whole life. Um, so, you know, to me, that's always challenging, you know, when you start to think about any type of trifocal or any type of, EDOF, even with the modern ones that are doing really well, like Symphony OptiBlue, you know, I'd just be concerned about that in a pilot who knows what good distance vision is. When, so, when a patient knows what perfect distance vision is, man, it's challenging to, to, to meet some of their expectations when they're driving down the road and complaining of quote unquote double vision, looking at um, you know uh, uh, license plates on cars and, and, and just little contrast things like that. Uh, that they kind of complain about. So um, for me, with it with him, I actually chose, uh, we did flax with dual arcs for that 0.7-ish of sill. And I did the Rayner one, Ray one EMV lens. Um, I love this lens. I, I targeted uh, minus 75 in the non-dominant and Plano in the dominant. We did do a contact lens trial pre-op to kind of prove that. Um, and this guy did really, really well. Um, you know, I don't know if y'all have used this lens a lot, but it's really been, it's become my go-to for anybody who's hyperopic. So this dude's spherical equivalent is like, like plus one or something like that. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's a hyperope, right? Um, and, you know, I find that when you offset the non-dom, especially with that lens, um, you can really get some amazing near vision. So I was concerned about like meeting his near vision goals. But at the same time, I was more concerned about, and someone said this earlier, I was more concerned about him not liking his overall quality of vision. Overall quality of vision and overall quality of distance is something that these patients just assume that they have. And you can even tell them that they may not, but they still say, yeah, no, I've kind of always, always had that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that, even if you tell them not. 
So I feel like with these people, man, you got to give some something that's going to give them overall good quality of vision, good distance vision, something that they have always had. If not, you're taking something away from them. And you can tell them to the blue, you're blue in the face that you're going to do that, but still they don't love that. So that's why I kind of chose that. It's a hyperopic patient. You know, maybe if it was a myopic patient, I would choose, you know, some something else. But um, in this guy, you know, I really thought that the EMV lens would do well. And like I said, this has been a fantastic lens. I, I've sort of converted all my hyper, and I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't consult with this company. I really have converted all my hyperopic patients to to this uh, Ray One EMV. I've got like 50 or 75 of them in, and I haven't taken out any, and, and really am doing well with it. So hyperopic patients are patients who want to have good range, but I, I don't want to split light. I don't want to um, worry about nighttime dysphotopsias, my pilots, people like that. Uh, I've been kind of going to this and more myopic patients who know what good near vision is. Those are the ones that I'll put on like a trifocal or, or, or something like that, or eat off trifocal mix and match. So Can I ask um, you a question, Blake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, and actually, this is for you, Sumitra and Luke as well. I want to be careful that I, and hopefully we all, don't just buy into marketing hype without science behind it. What is the true reality of the hydrophilic acrylic calcification risk? What do we need to know about that? This is not a patient who's going to have a DMAC, DSAC with air gas. I mean, retina, hopefully their retina stays great forever. But what do we need to know about that? What's the current state of reality in modern hydrophilic lenses that really don't dominate the market in the u.s yeah so you already said it with you know if they're not going to be getting some type of um, air fluid exchange or some type of retinal or corneal procedure um, you're fine this is not a, a, this this lens is not going to pacify so certainly you know people with retinal issues that that may have require an intervention at some point people who have gute you know are a clear no-no um, you know, for something like this, even if it's mild gute, still, I would think that'd be kind of like a, you know, a, a red flag for you. Um, you know, I remember I presented something about, or some, I think it was me. We, we were talking about this at, at uh, ACOS in Deer Valley and, um, and it kind of got like a bunch of, uh, raised hands. People were asking about it, um, because some people were concerned about hydro, hydrophilicity. Um, but really with this lens, if you, if you look at, you know, their numbers that was a part of their trial and, in their DFU, you kind of have some of the inflammation there as well. Um, it's it's exceedingly rare that they notice any any real opacity. Um, these are not popular here in the states. It just kind of got launched. Um, it is wildly popular in the UK. So a lot of our UK colleagues are using this routinely. Um, this is kind of what many of them use in place of like an Ihance. Um, this is kind of their Ihance type lens uh, in Europe. Um, and many, many feel like it has performed better, frankly, um, than IHANTS, uh, but they kind of positioned it in that space. And so more and more folks uh, here in the States are using it. Um, and I'm kind of on a group chat with a few folks that have kind of, you know, been diving into this and, you know, it's, it's new lens euphoria. So, you know, ask me next year, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll have some, some issues, but, um, at least to start, it's been really good. Have you guys used this, Demetra or Luke, have you used the EMV? No, but I mean, from the hydrophilic perspective, it's like, you know, think about the LAL at the end of the day, it's a silicone lens. I mean, a lot of things have to go wrong in the eye um, to to end up where you're having to get consideration for exchanging it or having a pacification or whatnot. Like the way I tell with the silicone patients, like a lot of bad things have to happen to that eye in this day and age to have to then get silicone oil. With that being said, I mean, like the acreos lens, I mean, that's a hydrophilic. We put a lot of scleral fixated acreos lenses and we did a lot of DSEC on those patients. Um, 
and a lot of them did great. You know, very few did we have to exchange. So I don't really know. Is, is it the science? Or is it really just the prevalence and the number needed to take out? Um, I think it's still extremely rare to Blake's point. And so I'm not concerned about hydrophilic lenses, but I think it's smart for companies coming here to understand that the average surgeon here does not want to put a hydrophilic in the United States. And that's just a cultural thing. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, it's so damn clear. I mean, it looks beautiful. I, I've always kind of laughed at the when people are like, oh, the lens just looks great in the eye. I'm like, what does that mean? But it, this, it looks great in the eye. Um, so, um, it's a beautiful material, the injector system, just a quick word on this, um, Luke, what do you think about this? So, you know, one of the, one of the, um, one of the, um, uh, learning objectives was talking about injector systems. I mentioned just because, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Rainer Ray one EMV does come in a preloaded form. Um, there's different, you know, injector systems out there. Um, Alcon's had Monarch and now this autonomy. Um, I know that Technus has simplicity. Um, what do you think about injector systems, the preloaded versus the sort of automatic ones that are coming out now? Is that something that's meaningful to you or is that just kind of nice to have? I mean, you know, we're, we're all busy, right? Like we, we want our cases to go quickly. You know, we, there's turnover, you know, probably more now than there used to be. And I mean, I think it's nice to be able to make it easier for the the, the techs who are not always, you know, you know, we're fortunate, you know, our, all of our OR techs are, you know, just ophthalmology. And so I, I think, I think that's nice just for the simplicity of it, but I mean, do I really, do I really care? I think it's a nice to have, but not a, not a need to have. Um, it's not going to move the needle. I'm going to choose the the lens that's, you know, in my mind, best for the patient and the, the injector is just kind of a icing on the cake. Yeah. I think it just depends on like, you know, like you said, wh wh where you operate and, you know, if you're someone who goes to three different surgical facilities each week and, you know, you don't know the technicians or you're at a hospital, certainly, certainly makes sense to, to have it preloaded. That, that's just nice. And the team likes it. Staff likes it. Um, honestly, the only preloaded thing that, that I think needs to happen is the ICL. I mean, when that happens, oh my God, that's going to be amazing. When we get preloaded ICLs, uh, that's going to be really cool. But in terms of IOLs, um, I agree, especially if you, pay, if, you have to, if you have to pay more for them, just to be preloaded, you know, um, that starts to become kind of become a thing, um, uh, especially if you own your own surgery center. Um, okay, case four. Um, this is a 64-year-old guy, so not in their 50s. They're in their 60s. Um, he's had myopic LASIK about 15 years ago, and he's been back in bifocals for several years. He's now seeing poorly and wants a solution to get out of the glasses yet again. He has uh, diabetes, but his uh, A1C was like 6.8, um, and he is a long-haul trucker. Uh, this guy does thousands of miles every single year. Love talking to him about uh, what states he, he likes driving through. Apparently, Montana's got no uh, speed limit. Uh, so, Luke, aren't you? No, you're from the Dakotas. You, you were born in the Dakotas or Montana? Yep, I was born in the Dakotas, and, and yeah, it was always fun going to Montana because we would uh, cross the border and we would just take yeah. off. You can just go. They <laughs> no longer the case. They they now they now unfortunately have a speed uh, speed limit. Do they? That's that's brutal. Okay, so I, I drive 100 miles per hour every single everywhere I go, which I'm a terrible driver. I uh, don't recommend that, uh, kids who are listening. Um, but Montana with no speed limit that that sounded cool to me. Anyway, he's got some uh, posterior subcapsular cataracts, and he's got some cortical changes um, as well. He's got LASIK flaps OU. And uh, you see he's kind of drifted sort of hyperopic here, plus 225 on the right eye, gives him 2040 vision. 
and we were able to refract him to 2030 minus with plus 175 sphere um, in that left eye. So, um, so, so Luke, what do you think about um, patients? Well, first of all, you just see that this patient has uh, has had LASIK before. Um, you see sort of the, the normal sort of pattern there. You see that there's not really a whole lot of astigmatism. Um, it looks like about, uh, well, actually about 0.9, I should say, on the right. Not a whole lot on the left, 0.2 on the left uh, of astigmatism. So thoughts about um, diabetics. Do, do, you, do you change kind of what you do? Um, does it all depend on what the, the retina looks like? And then um, patients who are wanting, you know, good vision at night. I mean, you know, is it any different for a long-haul trucker like this patient versus a pilot versus an Uber driver? Um, what's your overall philosophy here? Yeah, I think this is a really good case because you know, I've been I've been in practice about about a decade at this point, and I can tell you that in the first part of my career, I had, you know, I was always looking for that patient that I could do a, you know, a multifocal of some kind. Some of the, you know, do they do they qualify? Do they not? I mean, is it, you know, can I talk to the patient about their expectations and you know, kind of push the envelope? And you know the. You know, my I remember my my fellowship director told me never be a never be a hero in refractive surgery, and even though I would argue that we're probably a, that we are a very progressive practice, you know there are certain cases where I've just become a lot more conservative in my quote unquote old age as an elder millennial. So, <laughs> for a, you know I really try I really try to stay away from trifocals in diabetic patients and in traditional uh, traditional multifocals. You know, I really, I really like the EDOS and ideally a monofocal lens of some kind, you know, an LAL. And for those who really depend on good night vision, you know, I learned a lot from one of my fellowship preceptors, Jason Brinton. And he, he almost always recommends a monofocal of some kind in the dominant diet, no matter what, unless there's a reason not to. And so people who depend on good, good vision at night, I really want a, a monofocal of some kind, at least in the dominant diet. So... I mean, we can we can achieve very good vision. This person's a truck driver. I mean, it's in my in my mind, this is a pretty slam slam dunk case for what All I right. would do. Sumitra? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I'm a little more conservative in diabetic patients. I think it's what happens also when you've been in practice for a while. Like it's it's easy to say, I'm gonna make this patient happy right now. But a lot of these patients, you know, you see them five, 10 years later and, and they're they're not controlled diabetics anymore or you know, they're coming back from retina and, and, and they're here to, you know, do their YAG, but then you're like, wow, a lot has changed in your diabetic status. Um, but I was pretty conservative early on. And I think this patient, you know, they've had LASIK before, you know, digestible lens is really great for patients like this, um, as long as he's willing to truck drive right back to our clinic, um, to all of his visits. Um, I have a truck driver that took us forever to lock him in because his schedule was just so crazy. Um, but he was super happy with the decision because he got the distance vision he wanted. He got the intermediate vision with the EDOF part to it and able to see his dashboard. Um, and even told me he would check his cell phone a lot while he was driving, which I didn't need to hear about. Um, but I think for this patient, <laughs> I think LAL is a monofocal, which is awesome. I think it's a great option because he's post-LASIK. Um, and I think, you know, the, these patients do great. Um, and I think night vision is really important. I agree with Luke about the distance being really important for patients who have night. It's amazing how they can have a little mini or they can have like a blended vision with an EDOF in one eye um, and a monofocal in the other. And I think for patients who come in for 
you know, IOL exchange because they're unhappy um, with their glare at night. I always exchange their dominant eye for a monofocal. And they actually, a lot of them do really, really great. At least I assume they don't come back with the other eye, you know? So either I've tortured them and taken away their near vision and the dominant eye and they hate me, or, uh, you know, they're doing pretty well with 50% of that glare gone. Janet, what's your thought? Yeah, you know, great, great points. And, and the thing is, what's going to happen in a diabetic eye, right? It's going to get macular edema, maybe, hopefully not. It's going to have some vitreous hemorrhage or need of vitrectomy. Well, hope not. Is it going to, is this, is this, how old is this patient in, in his 60s? 65. Is this patient 65? Is he going to turn into one of these super young, terrible eye funnel RD 30? Probably not. I, I really don't think that, you know, the whole silicon oil is a super big worry here. And I know we're not choosing our IOLs quite yet, uh, but I think not all diabetics are the same. If you look at the age, if you look at the pathology, if you look at how well controlled they've been, it, there's no one best answer for, for all diabetics. But I do think about the nighttime truckers and I don't get excited about any additional dysphotopsias. And that's one thing to remember. If you look in the clinical trial literature from the FDA, from any lens ever, period, that at least that I've seen, and I've tried to look for them, not all of them, a lot of them, somebody somewhere complained about glare or halo or starburst, even the monofocals. And so when you're talking with patients, just remember, we may have this bias that's, oh, monofocals are kind of the gold standard of quality and everything else may get more range, but might have other stuff too. And that's not exactly a true starting point, logically. I like it. Okay. Um, so what's your plan here? So Luke, what's um, what Iowa type and what are you targeting and, and how are you treating the astigmatism? So again, post-myopic LASIK, um, 65 year, years old, hyperopic now, trucker. Um, what are you doing for this guy? Well, at the, at the risk of Sumitra telling me I just go for sexy lenses, I think this is a slam dunk uh, LAL. I mean, I can treat the can treat the residual astigmatism. I can give them a little bit of blended if I want. Um, I don't have to worry about multifocals or EDOFs in, in a uh, um, diabetic eye. Um, yeah, I mean, it, in our you know, in our practice, all four of our surgeons have agreed that in post-refractive eyes, we use the LAL unless there's a, a good reason not to. And the diabetes and the uh, fact that he's a truck driver, just two more reasons to to, to go that go with that. So, yep, I would do, uh, you know, I might use the femto, but yeah, LALOU. And you target distance vision in both eyes and then see what he wants from there? I would probably target mini monos, maybe like a minus 50, expecting to go a little bit more. But I mean, he's he's going to care about his dash. I mean, I understand why Sumitra would do hyperopia first with to, to get more eat off. But I think he's already post-refractive. He already has some eat off naturally. So I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that too much. And then when, when do you start to touch them up? Like when, when's the first, um, I'm guessing you don't wait four to six weeks, like, like you do with RK, if it's just post LASIK. You know what, it's, you know, it's rude to, it's rude to respond to a question with a question, right? But, but I'm going to do it. So at what point do we enhance our multifocal lenses? And I would argue that's typically three to six months for, for most people. And so just, and I've, we we ask every single patient to wait a minimum of six weeks. In some in some cases, we will debulk earlier than that. But we we have found lens shift as late as two months. 
in these uh in these eyes that are not post RK. So typically six to eight weeks. So even if it's just post LASIK, you'll wait six to eight weeks before you. Okay. Yep. All right, Sumitra, what lens are you doing, and uh, how are you gonna how are you gonna stage it? What's it what's it gonna be? Yeah, I mean, I, I like light adjustable lens. Um, Lucas, right? I, I do aim hyperopic to get the most EDOF, but I don't always do that for post LASIK guys. I, you know, we're doing a study right now looking at the higher order aberrations um, from your first treatment of light adjustable lens, and we just don't know how much higher order aberrations it does um, to give that EDOF. It's still a little black box, um, and so I don't always do that for the post LASIK. Like Luke said, they already have a little bit of higher order aberrations. You could do first plus in the dominant eye and first minus in the non-dominant eye and kind of work your way from there. And, you know, this patient has to be very um, compliant um, with also, you know, their sunglasses and stuff like that as they're, they're traveling around. Um, and, you know, the astigmatism, I mean, I, I like it. It's the fact that we're going to be able to treat that with the LAL, the surgical tools. Sometimes it's nice. I mean, I think if, I think most of us know how to do a rexus pretty well and we can size it appropriately. Sometimes if, if you make your rexus too big for the um, light adjustable, which sometimes um, we see it, it doesn't quite sit as well. So they actually encourage you not to make too large of a rexus. So if you have any challenges with a femtoseconds gray, you can get a very, um, you know, very repeatable um, capsule rexus. Um, but that'd be my goal for that, for this patient here. Okay. And then, and, and when are you waiting to do your adjustments? Do you wait six to eight weeks if it's just post LASIK? Um, I like to, so I like to do three to four weeks. I like, I like to do that initial, um, for all patients, uh, LASIK or for, um, myopic LASIK or for regular patients. I like to do that first treatment, um, that, that kind of, that, that one that kind of gets the EDOF in. Cause I think actually I then take a little longer to do my second and third treatment based on how happy they are. Cause I think sometimes they don't know how happy they're going to be with the lens until they've gotten that EDOF. But I actually agree with Luke. Cause I think the criteria now they're asking people with hyperopic LASIK, for example, to wait. You know, those patients have very irregular epithelium at times, and maybe they're not good light adjustable lens patients, actually, if they're pretty steep. And so those patients and RK patients, um, you know, and people who have ocular surface disease, I'll wait six weeks for those patients. Okay. All right. Bennett? All right. Well, I have a couple of debate points here, actually. Finally. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Uh, I know we've been, we've been, we've been kind of punching each other like this so far. So Luke, you mentioned we don't do our, we don't do our adjustments, uh, excuse me, we don't do our, our, our touch-ups from our premium IOLs until three months. That's true. But how many of those who end up needing it at three months could you have probably spotted it two weeks? My guess is a fair amount. And so I, I'm very comfortable with LALs, treating them with that first adjustment sooner if they're not RK, Right, that's a big difference, um, but I'm very comfortable doing that first treatment early. And what Sumitra was referring to earlier in terms of the extra depth of focus, what that means is the LAL has a little bit of negative spherical aberration, as many IOLs do. And in earlier generations of the lens, what you'd have to do is you'd have to have at least a half diopter myopic pull in order to generate extra negative SA to get more range. Now you do not need that half diopter amount. You simply need a non-plano target, which means if it, you can't go hyperopic and get it, you do have to come a little bit myopic. So right on at distance, if you're coming in closer is great. If your eventual, eventual target is minus 75, you can go minus a quarter or minus a half. Any amount of myopic treatment with a myopic target entered into the light delivery device will give you that that additional range and it will not do it 
no matter what, if you were aiming for distance vision, and, uh, because the point is, if it's going to be a distance lens, all the light will be a distance. In this patient, for me, I think LAL makes a lot of sense. I would start with dual distance unless the patient has done monovision. If the patient cannot come back for the visits because he's always on the road, then I want as, as much range as we can reasonably give without extra nighttime dysphotopsias, uh, which for me means a vividity. Eye hands would be fine. I have not gotten enough range in my patients with that one, even though the Johnson & Johnson uh, platforms are excellent and the material is great. I would go with a Vividity as my backup if he can't do an LAL here. And I'm comfortable with Vividity in post-myopic LASIK. That looked pretty well-centered. I think it would be reasonable. Um, yes, there's a little more variability in where they could heal after even myopic LASIK. Um, so LAL would be my first choice, but I want to give you my second in case he can't or doesn't do it. And that's Vividity in both eyes. Okay, final answer. Um, for me, um, you know, with this patient, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, any, any post-refractive, we, we're kind of pretty clear about, you know, it makes sense to go LAL. Uh, but like Sumitra said, uh, this is a truck driver whose schedule is absolutely insane. And this guy, I kind of didn't trust. Um, you know, he couldn't really give me a clear, you know, um, you know, time where, when he was going to be where. He had some prison tattoos. We didn't talk about the prison tattoos, but they were there. You know, he had money. Uh, he could pay for lenses, you know, but uh, I just, you know, he, he wasn't very clear with when he's going to be back. And certainly he didn't want to wait, you know, uh, months and months and months. Um, so um, for us, we did do the bilateral uh, uh, clear and material uh, vividity uh, because of the, you know, he's a truck driver. I didn't want to, um, you know, engage in any of the dysphotopsy issues, anything that's going to affect our livelihood, you know, at least even with pilots, like, you know, a lot of them don't fly at night, especially if they're just class three, you know, personal pilots, but truck driver, that, that that's their bread and butter. Um, this patient did really, really well. Three months post-op 2020 J3, um, which is very, very exciting. Uh, and he's very, very happy. Um, but, you know, the Vividity seems to be, it's kind of controversial right now. You know, I have a lot of friends who if they've had any type of corneal changes at all. They, they've avoided Vividity completely. And then for other people like myself, um, you know, if there's any retinal issues, we've avoided it completely. I, I've really gotten burned on some just very mild ERMs and stuff like that, that I was putting in Vividies nonstop. Uh, and I kind of, I've kind of cooled on that. Uh, but like Bennett, um, you know, for the post-myopic LASIK people, um, I've found that uh, I've had some success with this. Are you are you guys using Vividity at all? Who, who's kind of who do you position this in your practice, Dimitra? I mean, I was, and then the last uh, three ILL exchanges have been community Vividies in postmyopic LASIK. So I think at the end of the day, and that's not to say anything negative about Vividity. I think at the end of the day, and then you know, the last year before the Symphony OptiBlue, I mean, I was taking Symphony out all the time from the, from the community, you know, from from great doctors who just got burnt by that lens. And I think we're all we just, at the end of the day, have to be realistic about all these lenses. It's amazing that we have it. I mean, the amount of usage now for presbyopic cartoon lenses has, has gone up. The interest um, from our trainees is huge in them, um, but but we're still learning, you know, and, and I think each of us individually learns based on our last um, six months of experience. So I think for you having the ERM experience, I think somebody else would have you know, say that it's totally fine and their last 10 ERM Vividi patients have done amazing. So I think we still just don't know what we don't know. At the, at the end of the day, the Vividi has decreased contrast. 
um, you know, this, this ELB EDFs have a little bit decreased contrast compared to a monofocal, and we just have to be realistic about that. Well, I think for the next round, I'm going to try to come up with cases that like you can't say LAL, like uh, LAL would be a clear because like LAL, <laughs> LAL and ICA has become like the catch-all. So I'm like trying to come up with things that. And I always, I always hesitate easier. saying LAL because I know not everyone has access to technology, and unlike some of these other lenses where you can just purchase it on a per use, I mean the LAL is an investment, um, and not every practice it makes sense. And so I always caveat. I think it's it's good to have maybe you know, a backup. So let's say you do not have LAL, um, what's your option? I think it's a great way to do these cases. And I think what that means is we've had a fundamental shift in what constitutes a controversial case, right? Because it used to be these fringe cases that were the controversy. Now, it's just the normal cases that are the controversy. How do you take the bread and butter vanilla because that's where we probably have more variability between practice patterns because of LAL. And yeah. we've had, it looks like it's super, super close, but we have a winner. Dr. Candewal, Sumitra is the winner. She dethrones Bennett Walton despite his new haircut. Uh, Congratulations, Sumitra. Very good. Thank you. Uh, this and means- if you're going to have to grow your hair longer for the next competition. That was the problem. <laughs> I knew there was something. Uh, again, please select the next page to obtain your CME credit. Uh, and complete that post-test evaluation. We want to thank Evolve uh, Medical Education for having us. We want to thank uh, all of our contestants, uh, our past winner, Bennett Walton, Luke Revenich, and our uh, round two winner, Sumitra, uh, for being on tonight. Uh, thank you all so very much.